You're listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we work to reflect the diversity of Hermanus as we gather to hear the good news about the person and work of Jesus and as we scatter to share it. We hope that you enjoy. Like, oh, wait, I know Abraham. I know what's going on there. And for some of you, you're like, Abraham, uh, I think I know Moses, maybe Joseph. David, uh, maybe I know Abraham, whatever the case may be, this is why we need to go through it today. Uh, Next week, when we get to Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, we're going to be looking at a very interesting story, all right? And the thing that Paul does with that story seems very different than what we would expect him to do with the story. That story is the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and the two sons that are produced from that that relationship, those relationships, Isaac and Ishmael. So basically what I want to do today is I want to start us off by going back through Abraham's story, and that's going to be Genesis chapter 12 through 22. Yes, it's 10 chapters of Genesis, which means it's very long, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to try not to read all of it. Let me take that back. What I want us to do is I want us to have the highlight reel of Abraham's story. Okay? Um, Maybe you could argue the low light reel of Abraham's story. Okay? I don't know if you know this, but people in the Bible are not usually morally great people. Okay? Does that make sense? Does everyone hear me there? I know, as a child in Sunday school, I too was taught of all the positive character qualities of different people in the Bible. And yes, they have many of them. In fact, Abraham himself, I would argue, is a very great man in a couple of different senses, both in the sense that he is the father of faith in many ways, and then also that he's just a good man with a capital M, okay? (laughs) We're going to see some things in the story that prove that he knows how to run a household. Uh, Even he knows how to go to war with his household. Pretty cool stuff from Abraham's life. And yet, there's some pretty low points in Abraham's story. And that's where we're going to go. But in order to do that today, I want to go back to the big idea that's kind of a repeat of the big idea that we have been having. And it is this. Christianity is a rescue story. And the main characters of this story are ordinary sinners in need of a Savior. Alright? Christianity is a rescue story. And the main characters of this story are sinners, ordinary sinners, in need of a Savior. Abraham is one of those people. Let me set the stage for you. Oftentimes, we talk about the end of the world. If you've watched the news, you probably think the world is ending. If you've been on YouTube lately, the world is definitely ending. And all the time, everything feels like everything is ending. Uh, You know, in our church's statement of faith, we even say in there, we believe that we are living at the end of the world. Why? Why would we say something like that? Because we're a doomsday cult? No, (laughs) because the church, ever since Jesus ascended back into heaven, has believed that this is the end times. More specifically, 
at the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, everyone has believed, okay, we're now living in the end of times. It's a very common belief throughout the Christian church, throughout all of history. And it's a good thing to confess together. But, let me set the stage for Abraham a little bit, because he was living in some tumultuous times himself. Uh, Do you guys remember at the beginning of the book of Judges, totally different time period, I know, what does it say at the end of the book of Judges, rather? That everyone was doing what they thought was best in their own eyes, right? Essentially, everyone was living it to the top in sin and doing whatever it is that they wanted and whatever it took to survive in tribal Israel, okay? Abraham's living in a time very similar to this. You want to talk about cataclysms or end-of-world experiences, what's come before Abraham? Well, lots of things. Uh, We're talking about a flood that destroyed nearly everything. We're talking about the fall of the Tower of Babel, where men are dispersed throughout the world into different tribal groups, ethnic groups, if you wanted to say it like that. This is not a safe time period. This is not a time period where you would have wanted to go to bed without putting someone on guard outside the gates, right? This is not a time period that you would have wanted to um, leave your livestock outside the perimeter of the tents that you lived in. This was a tumultuous time. This is a time where people are surviving. And from the text leading up to Genesis chapter 12, where we're going to start this morning, we don't necessarily get the idea that there's too many people that have remembered that God created them and is is there to save them. It doesn't seem like anyone's remembering that, except for one man that we're going to meet in this story. And this man, his name is Melchizedek, right? Everyone know that name? Kind of? Okay, Melchizedek, he's interesting because he was a king. Now, just for the record, everyone was a king back then. (laughs) If you could own a little bit of of land and have a, a household troop and a group of people that followed you, you were a king. You were a lord. And Melchizedek was one of these people. Interestingly enough, Melchizedek was also a priest. He was a priest of Yahweh in the area that Jerusalem is in throughout the rest of the biblical story. So Melchizedek's a very interesting character. And in fact, if I were to look at any of the characters in this story and say, there's someone that should receive God's promises, it's Melchizedek, right? Because he's a priest, he's been making sacrifices, he's been keeping it holy, as it were, and he's a king. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is is a priest-king after the order of Melchizedek. So it makes sense. Melchizedek, he's the one that should be receiving the promises. But instead, who receives the promises? Someone that does not know God. Or someone that doesn't want to remember that God is there, that God has created them, and that God is in control of all things. And so we start off our story this morning in Genesis chapter 12. And again, I'll try not to read everything, but here we have the call upon Abraham's life. Now, the Lord said to Abram, name change, he used to be called Abram. 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, as much as I want to stay with Abraham's story, there's going to be a lot of points this morning that we can't just stick with Abraham's story because we know how this promise turns out. We know what the end goal of this promise is now. Abraham didn't. Abraham didn't have a clue what this actually meant. Right? And yet he leaves his family. He leaves his father's house. He goes out on his own and he trusts God. Um, just after that, uh, God is going to point out the land that is going to be given to Abram and his family. Okay? And here's the interesting thing. We know that the end of this promise is this, that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed by a Messiah where the good news goes out and people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are going to hear that good news and there are going to be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. They're going to receive that promise with faith. Right? But Abraham didn't know that yet. Now, the first black eye that we see in Abram's life is there in chapter 12 as well. He's traveling through the land of Egypt. Um, and what happens? Well, he's a bit nervous because he has a wife. And Sarah is her name. Her previous name was Sarai. So we could say Sarai or Sarah. And here's what happens. Uh, they're walking through the land and Abram says to her, Hey, Sarai, uh, listen, I need you to tell whoever we come across that you're my sister. Because you're very beautiful and they will try to steal you from me. And they'll, they'll kill me. So just say that you're my sister and we'll both be good. Now, what does this mean for Abram? Well, already we know that God has made a promise to Abram. that He's going to make a great nation out of him. He's got his wife here. And what does this mean? This means that this family that was supposed to be a great nation is going to be made from Abram and his wife, Sarah. And yet, what does he say? Uh, you know what? I think I'm going to put the promise at risk. I'm going to give you over to the Pharaoh of Egypt so that my life can be saved. Um, some things happen. Bad goes to worse. Uh, Egypt gets punished for stealing Sarah. And then what happens? The Pharaoh comes to Abram and says, what were you doing? What were you thinking? God uses a pagan, uh, a pagan that thinks he is God to rebuke his servant Abraham. And this is the first black eye that we see. Um, I'm going to skip through uh, chapter 13. Uh, but needless to say, uh, Abram has a nephew here. His name is Lot. And uh, they are partnered together. Their households are moving through the wilderness together. And what happens then? Uh, they grow too large. They have too much stuff, too many people, too many servants. And they need to separate. So Lot separates. And when Lot separates, he becomes prosperous. But he gets taken by a group of kings. Nine kings to be exact. And these nine kings take Lot hostage. In Abram, in chapter 14, we see a uh, sort of midnight rescue from Abram. 
who isn't just a man that has received God's promises. He's not just a man that has prospered under the blessing of the Lord. But in this case, he is a warlord. He's taking his household guard and he's going out and he's rescuing his nephew and he's making things just in the world. He's bringing out just a little bit of justice in the world. And as he does this, uh, a couple of things happen. He meets Melchizedek. And also these other kings offer to give Abram things. To say, hey, look, you defeated us. You get this much. And he says, no, 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 no. I can't take that because I'm being blessed by the Lord. And I don't want anyone to think that I've been blessed by, by you. All right? And in chapter 15... Uh, actually, I'll read a little bit from chapter 14 when, when Abram is blessed by Mal- Melchizedek. Uh, and forgive me, these names, these names are difficult, okay? After his return from the defeat of this place, I'll let you say it, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. We'll stop there. Here we see Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Uh, This is where Jerusalem would be at in the future. Salem, Jerusalem. There you go. You're seeing some of the, the word connections there. But we continue on in chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Okay, let's slow down and see what's happening here. Abraham is now advancing in years. When he first received the promise from God, he was about 75. Sarah was about 65. And uh, needless to say, they're not getting any younger, right? Uh, And he's getting nervous because Sarah still does not have a child. How is he supposed to be a great nation if he can't even make a child with his wife? This is a problem, and this is going to lead into an even bigger problem here in just a couple of verses. But at the end of chapter 15, we actually read this when we were going through Exodus, so I'm not going to take the time to read it all right now, but this is what happens. God makes a promise to Abraham. He deepens the promise that he's made with Abraham. And he he does it by means of a covenant. Now, we've talked about a covenant. We talked about it in Galatians. And what does Abraham do? He takes a certain number of animals that God says. He cuts the animals right down the middle. He lines the animals up on both sides of a little path. And what's supposed to happen? Well, back in Abram's day, this is what was supposed to happen. A lesser king would walk through the blood and make a promise to the greater king. What happens in this story though. What happens with God's promise? Abraham doesn't even walk through the blood. God puts him to sleep and God carries him through the blood. God says, the promise that I'm making to you, it's all on me. None of it's on you. This is a one-sided promise because Abram, let's just be honest, you don't have anything to offer me. 
I've got everything to offer you, God is saying. Abram's just an ordinary sinner. And we're going to see that right now. Chapter 16, here's what happens. Sarah's getting a little bit nervous. Okay, um, Abram's got a big old household. Uh, you can imagine that there's lots of people there. She still has not produced an heir. Um, and God is going to give them a child who will take over the family. How is he going to do this? Sarah's got the idea. I will take one of my servant women and I will give her to Abram. And they will have a baby together. And this is exactly what happens. The servant girl, her name is Hagar. She gets pregnant and things go south from there. You can imagine what happens. Hagar all of a sudden realizes, I'm the mother of the heir. I'm the mother of the promise. She starts feeling very self-important, as was probably right for her to do. Back in this day, this would have been totally normal. This would not have been strange, except for that's not what God had promised to Abraham or Abram. And so, um, Sarah starts to get a little bit jealous. And if you're wondering what's happening here, uh, you can imagine like the most dysfunctional family situation that you could ever imagine. Maybe for you, that's a family reunion. For me, that's probably a family reunion. Maybe it's watching... Uh, who's like, who's like a, a daytime TV show where things go wrong with families? Any ideas? <laughs> okay, just imagine that, right? So you got the judge handing out judgments. Well, you know, you got to get the blood test. You got to get the DNA test. This is the kind of scenario that we're in right now with Abraham. What happens when sin enters into the picture? Nothing good. And we all know that. When sin enters into the picture, um, what do we get? We get dysfunction. We get heartache. We get all kinds of things that God doesn't want us to experience. Now, we've read it before, actually, when we were talking about the law. And it says, where there is no law, there is no sin. What are we talking about? Does that mean that God just forgives Abraham because what he's doing isn't sinful? No, not at all. However, this is coming before the law of Moses, right? And what is happening here is that God is willing to forgive and look over a lot of Abraham's sin. Because remember, he's just an ordinary sinner. He's just an ordinary sinner who needs a rescuer. And so into this situation, there comes distrust. Into this situation, there comes even uh, an attempt to try to overthrow God's promises. And, and God isn't going to let this happen. Um, some things happen between uh, Sarah and Hagar and Abraham, and um, they, uh, for lack of better terms, she's put on the, the outside of the community, even though she's still with them. Now, you can also imagine that uh, this child, who's called Ishmael, is still a threat. Still a threat. And so, um, a couple times in Hagar's life, a character steps into the story called the angel of the Lord. And both times that this angel of the Lord comes in, uh, she calls this angel the same words that we would use to talk about the Most High God, Yahweh. Because she understands somehow or another who this angel actually is. And that is God 
come to visit her. And um, in the Bible, whenever this angel shows up, uh, we understand this to be Jesus before he was incarnate, right? We talked about him being incarnate today. This is Jesus showing up, okay? Now, so understand this, understand this. There's a promise that's been made. God has said he's going to be the one that keeps the promises. And who shows up to make sure that the promises are being kept? The angel of the Lord, Jesus himself. Now, that might sound a little bit strange to you, I understand. But think about this. When we confess that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, this does not mean that the Son and the Holy Spirit were nowhere in the Old Testament. What this does mean is that we didn't have a full picture of who God was in the Old Testament. God had not yet revealed himself in the way that we needed to be able to understand him. Okay? All right. So, um, in chapter 17, uh, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I might make a, that I might make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, my promise is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my promise, my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations." for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So here again, God is deepening, He's thickening the promise that He's making to Abraham. And then uh, in verse 15, we see that God promises the birth of Isaac. Um, I can't say Isaac in Hebrew, but it's, uh, there's too many sounds to come out of my mouth at one time. Isaac means the son of laughter, and that's because at this point in the story, uh, God tells Abraham uh, just exactly how the son is going to come to be, despite the fact that he and Sarah are very old. Sarah's listening to the conversation between God and Abram outside the tent, and she laughs in disbelief. Abraham does not believe and yet, this is what God is saying is going to happen, and so the child is called Isaac, okay, the son of laughter. Um, so here's a couple of things that we, a couple of threads that we see so far. Yes, we've seen um, Abram sin. We've seen Sarah sin. Uh, we've seen them drag someone else into their sin, actually a mother now and a child into their sin. We also see that they are acting in disbelief throughout pretty much every time God makes a promise with them. Does this strike you at all as odd? Or let's be honest with ourselves. This is the way that we are too. We're just ordinary sinners in need of a rescuer, in need of a promise maker, in need of someone who is going to care for us and save us and fulfill their promises to us. Um, I'm going to skip through chapters 18 and 19. Um, if you want some juicy reading, you can go through there, actually 18 through 20. Um, you might be surprised by what you read in those chapters, uh, as you should be. 
because it's despicable. And yet at the same time, this is once again uh, giving us the picture that we are not here uh, necessarily to be like Abraham. We're not here to be Lot, thankfully. Uh, we are here to be rescued and to look towards a Savior. Um, in chapter 21, we read this. The Lord visited Sarah as uh, he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And so here we go. Here's what's happened. Um, uh, Abraham and Sarah have not given up on having a baby throughout all these years. And God is now saying the time is now and it's happening. Uh, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son uh, in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abram, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So before, this, at, this laughter was kind of mocking God. And now she understands that she's the butt of the joke, not God. She understands that people are going to understand their circumstance to be as ridiculous as it really is. She's a 90-year-old woman having a baby and nursing a baby. Okay. Um, just after this, it's the second time that the angel of the Lord, uh, that God himself comes to Hagar. Hagar is sent out after uh, Isaac has been weaned. Why? Because this is probably a pretty good sign during this day that Isaac is going to live after he's been weaned. Okay. And who is Ishmael now? Uh, this child of Hagar, he is a threat. He is a threat because he is the firstborn child. And so Abraham needs to put him out. Uh, if you are a human and you have a heart inside your chest, this might cause you to think that's the coldest thing ever. Uh, and it is. Uh, in, in fact, uh, this is extremely, an extremely bitter thing for Abraham to have to do. And yet, he does it. Now, while Hagar is out in the wilderness with her son Ishmael, we read that they run out of water. And who shows up but God himself in the form of the angel of the Lord and makes a promise that he will care for Hagar and for Ishmael. Uh, in fact, he raises up Ishmael in strength. Ishmael, Ishmael becomes a provider and leads his own nation, becomes a king in his own right. And so now Abram is, just as the promise was made, the father of kings. Uh, and, and that doesn't even include all the kings of Israel that are to come. Okay, we're coming up to the end of our story here. Uh, let me just read this portion of it and, and we'll see what's happening, okay? After these things, this is chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham, Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. He said, take your son. God said then, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering 
on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, we've got to remember this land of Moriah, this mountainous area, uh, because this mountainous area is going to come up as very important. Uh, in the future, uh, one of Abraham's children, David, who is the king of Israel, is going to go to the same mountain when there is disease throughout Israel, a, a pandemic, if you wanted to say it, throughout Israel. And David goes up to the top of Mount Moriah, and he offers a sacrifice so that the disease would go away and that God would purify his people. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, And then David's son, Solomon, is going to go on top of that same mountain, and we will know that as the Temple Mount, where the temple is built and where the center of Jerusalem really ends up being. So this mountain is extremely important. But here we see Abram going to the top of this mountain with his son, God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is very important language right now because this is going to be language that we need to remember. It's going to be brought up one more time by God and it's going to be language that is echoed about God's own son, Jesus. My son, my only son, whom I love. Um, So... Abraham rose early in the morning, saddling his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abram said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and lay it on his son. I uh, sorry. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and lay it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand and the fire and the knife, so that they both went. So they both. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to to his father Abraham, "My father," and he said, "Here I am, my son." He said, "Behold, the fire and the wood." But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both, so they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and wood was laid in order, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached his hand, reached with his hand, reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing that you do not withhold your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So God called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said on that day, as it it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Okay, a couple of really interesting details that have taken place here. For three days, Abraham knew that his son was dead. For three days, Isaac was a dead man walking beside him. And for three days, Jesus lay in the tomb as a sacrifice for our sins. 
also going up to this mountain, we see um, this, this image of Abraham ready to sacrifice his own son elsewhere. Paul tells us that uh, Abraham had faith in God that, that he would raise Isaac back from the dead. And so we don't know exactly what was going on in Abraham's mind here, but we get that picture from the New Testament. And, and here's, the, here's the truth of it. Child sacrifice was not a strange thing during this day. In fact, it was very normal. Already, God has used many things that other cultures used to separate themselves. He's used circumcision. He's used uh, covenants and the sacrificing of animals in covenants. And so, for Abraham, this was not a strange thing. God has asked him to do something that was very hard, and he was going to go and do it. And yet, God is trying to get across to us right here that this story is not about the sacrifices that Abraham is willing to make. Remember who it is that has made the promises. God is the one who has made the promise. And He is the one who will sacrifice on behalf of His people that He has made promise to. And that's exactly what happens. The angel of the Lord, Jesus Himself, shows up And what does he say? Stay the knife. Do not sacrifice your son. I'm here to provide. In fact, the one who will be sacrificed for us, the one who will sacrifice himself for us, shows up to remind Abraham, you don't need to sacrifice. That's my job. And we think that the ram is the gift here. It's true that it is, especially from Abraham's perspective. But from you and I sitting here today, we know better than that. We actually know that the ram was a picture of the sacrifice that would come in Jesus. The ram was God providing. And one day, God would provide fully in His Son. Okay, so all that said, what are we trying to get at here? Um, this is the story of Abraham, and this is the story of Sarah, and this is the story of Hagar. These are people that you need to know next week when we get into Galatians. And yet, what we're really seeing here is that our faith is a rescue story. And main characters, well, we know Jesus is the main character, but we like to put ourselves at the center, right? So let's just say it. The main characters in this story, we're just ordinary sinners in need of a Savior. And throughout Abraham's life, he realized this over and over and over again as God made a promise and waited and then had to reinstate the promise and retell the promise and remind him of the promise over and over and over again. Had to go so far as to put Abraham up on the, on the top of the mountain ready to sacrifice his own son for God to say, no, remember, I'm the one that carried you through. I'm the one that made the covenant. I'm the one that provides the sacrifice. I'm the one that saves you, that provides for you, that cares for you. You know, as we come to the book of Galatians, uh, this is what we're faced with all over again. Right? Abraham tried everything to try to make the promises of God come about. In fact, he was even willing to sacrifice the one thing that God had gifted him in the form of a son, Isaac, right? 
And in Galatians, we learn over and over and over again, it's not about your sacrifice. It's not about what it is that you do for God. It is about what God has done for you. This is a rescue story. It's so jarring. And it it always brings me to a place of weakness when Isaac says, where's the lamb? Um, and we don't really get an answer to that question except for God will provide, right? But John the Baptist, when Jesus walks up, what does he immediately know? This is the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. So in response to Isaac's question, where is the Lamb? It's Jesus. And He's come to take away your sin in mine. He's come to carry your brokenness and your sorrow and your sinfulness and to put it on Himself. To become a sinner in your place and to give you all of His righteousness. To give you salvation. You are in a rescue story. And you are that, in it, that ordinary sinner that needs a Savior. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love You. We thank You once again that we could dive into Your Word this morning and look at Abraham and his life. To look at Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. And Lord, to know that their story is our story. That these are not just insignificant words on a page or, or characters that we can easily forget, but these are people that You have used throughout history to make Your purposes known. And so, Lord, I pray that as we uh, leave here today, that as we come together again next week, that we will be reminded of, of Abraham and of Sarah and of Hagar, and that we will see where our place is at in their story. Father God, we are thankful that we do not have to save ourselves. We know that we fall short, and yet we know that You are a rescuer. And Lord, just like Abraham, we are proof that there needs to be a rescue plan. And so we thank You for Your Son, Jesus. We thank You for His blood shed for us, His body broken for us. Our death that He died, and His life that we have received. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.